prayer. But you know, talking about prayer, um, who in the Bible stands out to you as a person of prayer? Who in the Bible prayed a lot? And you don't have to shout it out, but just think, you know, some of the names in the Bible, right? Jesus, right? <laughs> That's like the obvious one, right? Well, you know, there's people like Moses prayed, Daniel prayed, David prayed, but uh, out of all the people, Jesus, he, his life is marked by prayer. In the morning when everyone's sleeping, he would go off to pray. In the middle of a busy ministry schedule, he would sneak away by himself to pray. At night, when everybody else was safe and sound and asleep, he would go off to the mountain in the night, and he would pray, and he would seek the Father. I mean, his life was so marked by prayer that when the disciples came to ask Jesus, teach me, teach us, they didn't ask Jesus, teach me how to cast out demons. They didn't ask, teach me how to raise the dead. They didn't ask, teach me how to walk on water. They asked only one thing of Jesus, teach us how to pray. They recognize and realize that all this power, all this mighty works, all this holiness and righteousness that comes out of Jesus, it's because of his prayer, because of his time with the Lord. And so they ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. This is from Luke 11, verse 1. So think about this for a moment. Why did the Son of God pray so much? Why was he always going in prayer? Think about it. And then let's ask ourselves this question. How is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? As soon as I asked that, I saw some of your heads going, hmm. This message, hopefully, is not to condemn you, but hopefully it will challenge and convict us. It will remind us of this precious gift, this precious honor that God has given to us to come to him and pray. And today what we'll be doing is we're going to be looking um, in through the book of Psalms, and we've been continuing our series on reconnecting to God, and specifically talking about prayer. Now, if the Word of God is our bread, our daily bread, then prayer is our daily breath. It's, it's impossible for a Christian to say that they are a Christian without prayer, just like it's impossible for a person to say, I'm a, I'm a living being without breathing. Prayer is that essential. You cannot connect to God without prayer. And today, as we look at Psalm 86, we're going to learn from David about the importance and how we are to pray. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 86, and we'll be reading from verse 1 through 17, and it's, it seems like it's long, but it's really not. There's so much wisdom and wealth and heartfeltness that we can learn, and I encourage you to bring your Bibles or have a Bible app and underline with your finger, you know, things that stick out to you so you can study on your own. But also take note of things that are repeated. And what you'll find also is as we read Psalm 86, there are so many songs written from this psalm. You'll see it as we read. Okay? So here we go. Psalm 86, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, 
and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The word of God to us today. Please take a moment to look at that yourself. You know, every time I read scripture, I'm so thankful uh, for the men and women who've gone before and that just to write down and to journal what God has shown them. That's God's word to us. I'm so thankful that our older brother David journaled. But what we have here is we've given this uh, tremendous insight on the importance of prayer, but also how to pray, how to approach God in prayer. From this prayer, we can tell that David is facing some kind of formidable enemy. Whether it's King Saul, his son Absalom, or some enemies, we cannot be sure, but he's going through a difficult, troubling time. There's adversity, there's persecution that's facing him. So as we look at this, at this prayer, what we learn is that not only is it a prayer of help from the Lord, but it's also a prayer of deep-felt worship and glory to God. And it's also a prayer of strengthening, of God's strength, so that I may be able to do the adventure of God or the call of God. And surely when God calls us, it is a great adventure. Everyone that God saves, he calls us to join him in establishing his kingdom on this earth. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So as we look at the passage, let's, let's study this together. Why and how David prays. Why and how David prays. I'll break it up into three sections. Number one, from verse one through seven is this. David knows God, and he knows God's character. David knows God, and he knows God's character. Number two, from verse eight through 13, David prays rejoicing in God's crowning reign. God's crowning reign. I was trying to do the C, alliteration, right? God's character, God's crown, right? And then verse 14 to 17, David prays with conviction of God's calling with God's calling. Okay, so keep that in mind as we go through it. So number one, David knows God and God's character. He doesn't just know about God. He doesn't just have information about God. He knows God in a very real sense, in a personal, intimate, growing sense. And that's why he prays. Like a father, son talking to the father. Like a friend talking to a best friend. He prays because he knows God. And he begins by saying this, incline your ear, O Lord, an answer. In the, in the King James Version, it says this, bow down thine ear. Bow down thine ear. In the NIV, it's this, hear me, hear me. Now, when you hear this verse, what does it sound like? It sounds like a command, right? In fact, it is. It's in the imperative form in the Hebrew, which means that it is a command. So David, in a sense, is commanding God, incline your ear to me. Come here. 
Now, who does David think he is? Who does he think he is that he can command God to do something? Here's the thing. It's obvious that David is not coming from a place of arrogance. It's obvious he's not coming to God from a place of entitlement, like, God, you owe me something. Because what does David say? For I am poor and needy. He's coming to God with this kind of command because he's poor and needy. Now, if you think about it, and this is the way I see it, it's like a little child that goes up to its daddy and says, Daddy, daddy, come here. Give me your ear. I have to tell you something. I have to ask you something. Now, no father would say this to their, to their child. You cannot talk to me like that. Rather, you must say, oh, Father, I need to approach thee. Like, no, no father would say that. A loving father, knowing their heartbroken child, would gladly say, what is it? And what David is doing here is he's showing his intimacy. He's showing that he knows his father, his God, his creator, in an intimate and a very real place. It's coming from that place of need, not from a place of arrogance. God wants you and I to know that we can approach him this way. He wants us to come to him like this so intimately and to know him that you and I, we can also pray, incline your ear, O Lord, answer me. Do you know him? How's your prayer life? Do you know him? And then he goes on to say in verse 2, preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. How many of you felt uncomfortable with the fact that David was commanding God in verse 1. This part really made me uncomfortable. Preserve my life. If I was praying that, I would say preserve my life because I'm a sinner. I wouldn't say I'm godly. But this is what David says. Now that word godly in the Hebrew is the word hasid. It's stemmed from hased, which means faithful, steadfast. And in the hasid version, it means I am your saint. I am set apart from you. So David here, he's not saying that he's godly in the sense I'm perfect and without sin. What he's saying is this, I belong to you, Lord, O Adonai. I put my trust in you, Lord, O Adonai. I am your servant. And and verse 3 says, I cry to you all the days of my life. You are my master. David is boldly saying, I am godly because you are the one that I pursue and that I seek after. You're my master. Now, I want you to note this. David is not pulling an emergency God card. You know that sometimes we as Christians, we'll, we'll play that emergency God card. Like we never pray, we never seek the Lord, but something bad happens and we go, oh God, help me, right? It's not that kind of prayer. David has been walking with him all the days of his life. He has been crying out to God all the days. And so as he comes before the Lord, what he's saying is this. I've given you everything. I've trusted in you in everything. I cry to you in everything. You are my master. And he knows this, that because you are a good master, you will save me. You will protect me. You see, when we are fully given over to God, we have the sense of assurance that God is fully given over to us. And this is what David is saying. He knows his position. He knows his relationship with, the, with God the Father. And verse 4 and 5, he goes on to say, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Do you notice there's a little subtle shift there? It goes from asking and, and giving the reason for his, his uh, ability to ask, to all of a sudden he's starting to kind of a shift in what he's praying. 
See, when attacks come, David says, I trust in the Lord and I wait for your gracious response. David knows this. The Lord alone can transform adversity into joy. What we see by the end of the stanza, verse 5 to 7, is David doesn't have to present his reason for the Lord to answer him because he knows God's character is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. You see, David has been on a journey. He first started off with, I'm poor and needy, save me. And now he's slowly starting to change the way he prays into, God, you are good. You are forgiving. You are steadfast and loving. You answer all who call. He has now realized again God's character, God's goodness, and he doesn't have to present his case of why God should answer. He simply rests upon the Lord. David realizes this, that he goes from a place of anxiety and fear to a place of peace, of rest, of praise. Let me ask you a question, because as I was praying over this passage throughout this week, what is the opposite of anxiety? What do you think it is? Most of us will say the opposite of anxiety is peace. No. I realize from this passage, the opposite of anxiety is God's presence. The cure to your anxiety is not peace, make everything go away, Calgon. That's not, some of you guys don't even know what Calgon is, right? Just me and me. The opposite, the cure for anxiety is God's presence. And David realizes now as he's spending time in God's presence that he says, oh God, now that you are with me, I can rest assured. I can know that you are good and you're faithful and you're forgiving and that you answer. Now there is this saying that goes like this. Faith can move mountains, but prayer moves God. And I agree. I agree to that. Our prayers do move God. But I also see that prayer moves David. Moves David from fear, from worry, from anxiety to gladness. Now his heart is being glad in the Lord. And then what happens now? Okay, you're tracking with me? Verse 8 through 13. David's prayer turns from prayer of asking into a prayer now of rejoicing in praise. Do you see that in verse 8 to 13? I'm not going to read it. You can look at it yourself. David declares his confidence in God's crowning reign, his greatness, his preeminence. He begins to start bursting forth in praise. He can't hold it in. He's like, mm, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Right? You read it. It just bursts forth. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Great are you, Lord. It just goes on and on. Because he prays. And because he knows God and he sees God's character, and now his prayers turn into praise and worship. He says this, teach me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. So many wonderful songs come from David's prayer. His spirit is now pumped up. Right? His soul is gladdened. His heart is now realigned to the Lord. Before, David's enemies and David's trials and circumstances were so overwhelming. that They are still real, but now they are put in their proper perspective. It's tiny in comparison to the glory of God Almighty. For David, this is not theory. This is not just something that he's taught. This is something that David experiences in God, experiences God in prayer. 
God became more real to him than his troubles. Now, I'm sure you guys all are familiar with Billy Graham. And one, one interviewer was asking, Billy Graham, how do you know God is real? And Billy Graham says, because I talked to him this morning. Do you know God? Do you spend time with God in such a way that you give God the opportunity to speak to you and to manifest his glory to you? And this is what happens as David is praying. He starts to exalt the Lord. Now, let me say something here as a warning. Let me say something to us as a warning. You see, God, he is good. He is faithful all the time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Great. And sometimes, here's the thing. He will answer your prayer when you want it, the way you want it, even surprisingly. But that doesn't automatically translate into a deeper relationship with God. Let me say that again. Just because God answers your prayers, that does not translate into a deeper relationship with God. Do you remember the 10 lepers? They came to Christ, and what did Jesus say? Go and show yourselves to the priest, and as they're going, they're healed. But only one comes back to give thanks, the Samaritan. Just because God does miraculous work in you, it doesn't mean that's going to transform your relationship with God. In fact, here's the thing that's so dangerous about Christian, American Christianity, Western Christianity, is this, that so often, sometimes, we're focused on God's hands and not God's face. We want God for what he can give us instead of really examining if we are given over to him. And if you have that kind of heart, it will not build your intimacy with God. It will not cause you to see God's character. And I'll tell you why. Because if that's your attitude, that you just want to get from God, you just want to focus on his hands, what's going to happen is this. You're going to go through a time of adversity. You're going to go through a time of difficulty, maybe a time of severe sickness or something like that. And God doesn't answer you the way you want it or when you want it or in the way you want it. And what will happen is two things. Number one, either you become embittered and cynical. And so your heart's response is, you know what I prayed about? It? God didn't give it to me. So why, what's the point of praying? God doesn't answer anyway. You can become embittered and cynical. And it's not because God is not with you or God's not answering you. It's because you never gave yourself over completely to God. Or well, the second thing that could happen is this. You become giving up. You become passive. You just go, you know what? I prayed. Nothing changed. So I guess this is just the way it's going to be. And you have this passive compliance in your attitude in prayer. And this is not going to cause you to draw closer to the Lord. Because you never, you, because what ends up happening is we don't seek God for who he is. We just seek God for his gifts and for his answers. And I want to just give you that warning. Because that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to know his character. To know him personally. And also to rejoice and praise God for his crowning reign. His rule over our life. And lastly, what happens, because this is what happens. I think any, all of us here, we can actually serve God with a grumbling heart. We can actually serve God like, oh, man, I, gotta, I just got to do it because I made a commitment. And that's okay. That's, that's honorable in itself. But there is a difference when your heart is filled with praise. When your heart is filled with worship. And, you, and God calls you to do it, you're like, let's do it. You feel charged. You feel excited to do it. And I know that's, that's I've, I've experienced that myself, but it happens in prayer when you spend time with God. And so what we see happening to David is now he's going from the first part of prayer, he's going into worship, and now he goes to this part, the third part. He prays with conviction of God's calling, verse 14 through 17. He says this, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. 
But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He says this, there there are insolent, insolent, arrogant, godless men who seek to destroy my life. David is making a very clear distinction, clear comparison, making loud and clear. God, I'm godly. I seek after you. I set you before me. These men, they seek to destroy me. They want me to stop glorifying you. They want me to stop what you called me to do to build your kingdom. I want us to know that they're not attacking David because David's at home watching Netflix. They're not attacking David because he's going out checking out the nicest restaurants. That's not why they're attacking David. They're attacking David because David is pursuing God's purpose, God's call. And they're pursuing him. And David says, this is what's coming after me, Lord. But, once again, he repeats God's character. But you, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious. And so he goes, I'm going to trust in you. And notice what happens now in verse 16 and 17. Because, brothers and sisters, when we face challenges and adversities, this is what we need. This is what we need to ask and pray to the Lord. Notice what he says. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. And save your son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Notice that David doesn't say, hide me from these men. Notice he doesn't say, remove me from the situation. He doesn't say, take out those godly, godless, arrogant men with a snap of your fingers. He doesn't say that. Rather, what does he say? In essence, God, be with me. Give me your strength to do what you've called me to do. Be so present in my life and my calling that when those who hate me, when they see me, they will see your favor. They will see your help. They will see your comfort, your glory, and they will be put to shame. David, he's not asking for a comfortable life. He he wants to live for God. He wants to bring God's kingdom to those around him. He wants to face injustice. He wants to be a vessel of mercy. He wants to be a a servant of compassion and goodness. He wants to face every challenge, every opposition as an opportunity to show the glory of God. What a vast difference from verse 1 through verse 17. Verse 1, I'm poor and needy. In a sense, oh no. Verse 17, okay God, let's go. Prayer. Praying. Being with the Lord. See, this is the great adventure. You know, Martin Luther, he's a great reformer. You know, he literally went against the whole Roman Catholic Church in that sense. And he was so busy just pushing forward sola scriptura, the word of God. And then people were saying, like, you're so busy, but you pray three hours? And this is what he says. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. In essence, he's saying, unless I pray, I cannot do what God calls me to do. Unless I pray, I cannot launch off into the adventure that God calls me to. And as I was meditating on this scripture, I was just thinking, I wonder if this may be one of the reasons why many of us don't pray. Not only because we're not invested in our relationship with God, but we don't think of our life as an adventure. We don't see God's call in our life as an adventure. We don't see that that adventure is to build his kingdom, to reveal his kingdom among our family among our coworkers, among our friends, to the world. Because here's the truth. The greater the adventure of God's calling, the greater will our need be for God's presence 
to encounter and to face those challenges, to face that adventure. Brothers and sisters, God's calling you, those who are saved, to build his kingdom. I wonder if our prayer life is matching that or if our prayer life kind of matches we're just building our own kingdom. I think about this passage, and I'm, again, I'm encouraged, and I feel empowered, and I just feel like this is what I'm going to pray all the time. But I wonder who else might have been impacted by David and his prayer. And someone that comes to me is Daniel. Do you remember what happened to Daniel in the book of Daniel? Remember he is, he is you know, exiled to Babylon. And King, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream, and it, it bothers him so much, it disturbs him so much, he calls all his wise men and all his enchanters, and he says to them, I had a dream, and I don't know what it means, I want you to tell me my dream, and I want you to interpret it. Whoever can do that, I will make you rich, I will give you power, I will make you number two in charge of Babylon. And all the wise men are like, oh, okay, tell us the dream. And he's like, no, I'm not going to tell you my dream, because I know you're going to try to misinterpret it. So tell me my dream and the interpretation. And they're all like, who can do that? That's only, only God can do that. And then King Nebuchadnezzar gets so angry, and he goes, I'm going to tear every single one of you limb from limb. I'm going to kill all the wise men. And that's including Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So as Daniel is being led away to the execution block, he says to the chief uh, uh, court official, what's going on here? Why is King Nebuchadnezzar's command so urgent? He goes, this is what reason. And what does David say? Give me time. Can you just give me some time? To do what? To pray. See, Daniel believes in prayer. Daniel goes up to his three friends, says, pray with me. And I could just imagine Daniel using Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord. Answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Your servant, save your servant who trusts in you and cries out to you all day. And what happens? God answers. God gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And he comes before Nebuchadnezzar and tells him the dream and the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar goes, surely the gods are in you. And elevates Daniel as the chief of all the wise men. Brothers and sisters, this is the great adventure. This is what God's calling us to, but we have to pray. We have to spend time with the Lord. We have to encounter his goodness, his character. You know, brothers and sisters, as I close, Jesus' life is marked by prayer. And you know, we, we know why he prayed, because he loved the Father. He was poor and needy. He needed the Father. If he's poor and needy and need the Father, how much do we need the Father? But not only that, we know that he was sent for the greatest adventure of all time, which is what? To face death. To conquer sin that we might be reconciled to the Father. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has given us the way, the privilege to pray and to have the audience of our Heavenly Father. I pray that you and I, we would not take this for granted. But again, hear God's call to pray and to go with Him on the great adventure. Let's pray together.